Hey there, and welcome to the podcast for Wednesday, January the 13th. Coming up, we'll talk about the oldest and most distant black hole that has ever been discovered. Plus, as well, more on the state of emergency and the stay-at-home order issued here for Ontario. And paid sick leave for those who are considered essential workers. We will delve into that topic all ahead on the podcast right now. First, as some space news. Just discovered the oldest, most distant black hole and quasar in the universe. And here with more details is our space expert, Paul Delaney. He joins us on Global News Radio 640 Toronto. Hey, Paul, good afternoon. Good afternoon to you too, Jeff. Uh, First of all, a bit of a definition, if you could. Uh, A black hole in a quasar. Now, I'm of a certain generation that a quasar was a microwave, a make of a microwave, but... (laughs) What is a quasar? Okay, a quasar is basically a fairly distant galaxy that has a very bright core or nucleus, and that core is so bright because of the presence of a supermassive black hole that is literally just consuming gas and other material at a prodigious rate, creating what we term an accretion disk, a big fat donut around it, which is so incredibly hot that it gives off more light, more energy than the rest of the galaxy combined. Paul, that does me no good. That does not, no, okay. (laughs) Uh, Okay, so I've kind of got that and what a quasar is, but how does that differ a quasar from a black hole then? Okay, so black holes are very dense, supermassive objects which have got so much mass concentrated within a very small volume that nothing can escape from it. The escape velocity is larger than the speed of light, which means not even light that's coming off of this object can get out of the gravitational field. So it really is a black object. And supermassive, these objects hang out at the center of all galaxies. We've got one in our own galaxy, but it's a lightweight. Uh, But big galaxies, as you can imagine, have bigger black holes, supermassive black holes. When they are in their prime, they literally act a little bit like a vacuum cleaner. They, they, They scoop up the material that is very near to them, and that material is what bangs into each other, creates this uh, accretion, this, this, this donut, and it's that which is really, really hot, and as I said, brighter than all the rest of the galaxy stars combined. So supermassive black holes can have this sort of appendage, if you will, this, this torus of material, and that makes them so incredibly bright. Yeah, and it's not just that you're absolutely right that this is the oldest or most distant to black hole, but it's a supermassive one. It's uh, being described as, uh, as you rightly uh, point out. So why are folks like yourself, why are scientists, why are they all geeked out about this discovery? Uh, uh, what's this telling us? Well, it, it's, it formed within about 650 million years of, of the Big Bang. So if you think of the Big Bang, the beginning of our universe as time, T equals zero. Today, we're about 14 billion years, a little under that, 14 billion years downstream in time. This object that we're looking at occurred, was formed, and was producing all of this bright energy 650 million years after the Big Bang. That's an incredibly short period of time for the galaxy as we are viewing it, this quasar, to be doing what it's doing. You know, it takes time for black holes to get really big. It takes time for black holes to create this accretion disk and become very bright. And 650 million years 
doesn't really strike us as enough time. And so we've always had theories about when did the first stars form? When did the first galaxies form? When did the first quasar form? And they're all predicated on trying to figure out how things come together in the early universe. And now we've got a, a benchmark only 650 million years after the Big Bang. And we look at this guy and go, well, that means this theory doesn't work. Uh, this theory doesn't work. And it, it begins to narrow our understanding of what had to have been happening back over 13 billion years ago. That, that's why we're so excited. It's pivotal to our understanding of the way the universe got rolling in those early years. Okay, but we don't know. This is not shedding light on how or why. It's just, if I'm understanding you correctly, it's basically kind of shrinking the timeline a little bit for us? Oh, no. It, it, it is actually throwing out theories of how galaxies began to form. Uh, you know, when, when the Big Bang happened, there weren't galaxies. There was just hydrogen and helium and a lot of energy. But as the universe got larger and it cooled down, some of those hydrogen atoms got together and began to form stars. And the more stars that formed, they gravitationally formed collections, clusters, and then they formed galaxies. So there is a, a distinct process whereby the universe begins to build itself after the Big Bang. But how it built itself is really hard to figure out <laughs> from this point in time, 14 billion years later. So we look to things like these quasars uh, and, and other big galaxies in the early universe to give us clues about how the formation processes started. All right. So, Paul, what's the next steps here? Because I understand it was a variety of uh, telescopes and observatories, particularly one in Hawaii, that helped us uh, identify uh, all of this. Is it possible? Do we want to send some sort of, uh, I don't know, lunar lander or so something like that out there to investigate this further? Uh, where do we go from here? The lunar lander is certainly not an option. Okay. Uh, what we what we can do is continue to push back to earlier and earlier moments in the universe. And that's what this team is doing. As you said, they're using a collection of telescopes. This is a great example of how you just don't use one small telescope and go, aha, I figured this out. They, they were using a collage of telescopes in Hawaii, in Chile. They were using radio telescopes as well. Putting these pieces of the picture together. It's like a big jigsaw puzzle, and we're slowly trying to fill in the picture, and we just don't know what the picture looks like. So we're, we're turning over pieces of the puzzle at all times. The next step is to try and take the same technique that these guys use and push to earlier eras of the universe. And if we can get back to, say, 500 million years, 400 million years after the Big Bang, then that will give us more clues about what was actually happening in star formation and galaxy formation processes back a long, long time ago. This is just so fascinating. It's also, and you know, here's why I have problems getting my head around this, wrapping my head around it, because it's just so humbling, right? Just trying to figure out uh, how the universe started, how we all got here. Uh, I mean, it just, I don't know, it makes my head hurt thinking about it, Paul. <laughs> well, I think of it as job security, because, you know, there's so, so many things that we don't understand here. But yeah, this is a great example of us really taking modern technology, because that's what's enabling us to look back over 13 billion years. You're right. It does make your head hurt. I look at my students and they go, really, seriously? But, you know, that, that's what it's all about, to try and push the technology to gain insight into eras and distances that we otherwise would never be able to examine. All right. Always appreciate you furthering our, furthering our understanding. Paul, thanks so much for the time, as always. 
Not a problem, Jeff. Take care. All right. Be well. Space expert Paul Delaney with us. There's a lot of criticism, seems to be a lot of confusion out there when it comes to this stay-at-home order. He tried to clear that up at the end of the uh, presser about half an hour ago. Have a listen. You know, I, I hear there's a little bit of confusion on the order and everything. There is no confusion. I hear some elected officials, uh, local ones and other ones, oh, it's confused. Folks, there is no confusion here. It's very simple. Stay home. Stay home. That's it. If you're questioning, should I go out? You got the answer. Stay home. Restay à la maison. That's simple. <laughs> and, and, and it's very, very simple. Stay home. Stay home. I don't know what more I can describe. And for anyone who says, or elected officials, you aren't being responsible. Be responsible. The message is simple. Stay home. There can't be any clearer than that. So thank you. All right. And I appreciate everyone. Premier Ford uh, from uh, last hour. Let's uh, welcome in now the uh, leader of the Ontario Liberal Party, Stephen Del Duca, is on the line and joins us here on Global News Radio 640 Toronto. Mr. Del Duca, good afternoon. Good afternoon. Thanks for having me back. Well, thanks for being here. You've had 24 hours to digest this, as we all have. Uh, what's your overall take on this plan that's been laid out uh, by the Ford government? Yeah, look, I, I just heard the clip that you played a second ago. I, I heard it, you know, earlier as well. I, I don't, it comes across to me a little bit flippant. It sounds to me like Doug Ford thinks this is on some level a laughing matter. It's not a laughing matter. This is deadly serious. Uh, I don't think anybody in Ontario can fully understand why he keeps delaying uh, with the decisions that he needs to make. He did it just this last week. He did it right before Christmas. He's done it prior to that. Don't think anybody can understand why big box retailers continue to sell non-essential goods. Certainly can't understand why he hasn't delivered on paid sick leave when literally every single person who speaks about this, municipal leaders, opposition party leaders, public health leaders, everybody is talking about this. That's got to get done. The vaccine rollout was paused. At the end of the day, he should go back and watch his tapes from yesterday. If he's wondering why people are confused, he should take a look in the mirror because he's the guy who's been spreading misinformation, confusing messaging, and an incoherent plan for months. Okay, sounds as if he tried to clear it up a little bit today. And basically his message is, if you're not sure if your trip is essential, it's probably not, so stay home. Is that good enough? So then why leave big box stores open and let them sell non-essential goods? He's telling everybody to stay home, but if somebody decides that somebody decides that they need a non-essential good, whatever it happens to be, they can still traipse off to their local big box retailer and buy it. It's just you can still go outside and gather in groups of five. You know, you might be working in an area of construction that truly is not not it's not essential, but that stays open. I mean, you literally go by blow by blow by blow through what he and his team announced yesterday, and it's chock full of holes. Reporters are asking questions. The people of Ontario are asking questions. And somehow, Jeff, Doug Ford thinks it's your fault and my fault that we're in this mess. It's not your fault. It's not my fault. It's his fault. This is the job that he ran for, and the buck stops with him. And I don't know when he's going to wake up and realize that fact. All right, but is there some uh, personal responsibility to be had by each and every one of us uh, here, though, Mr. Del Duca? I mean, it's one thing to point the finger at the uh, government, but do we need to all look in the mirror as well and uh, look at maybe some of the trips we've all taken, whether or not we've truly adhered to all of the uh, guidelines, uh, whether or not we've let uh, COVID fatigue take over? Look, I think there's always a responsibility that we take on during something like this, but I have incredible faith in the people of Ontario. And in my circle of family and friends, as far as I know, for the most part, everyone's stuck to the rules pretty religiously. I think most Ontarians have. 
Is there pandemic fatigue almost a year in? Of course there is. Of course there's pandemic fatigue. This is the time when we need clarity and coherence and, yes, empathy from someone in Doug Ford's position backed up with meaningful action. So, for example, where is that paid sick leave? Why do big box stores still get to sell non-essential items? Why hasn't he called in the military to help with the vaccine rollout? And in particular, help with the vaccine rollout in our nursing homes. 40% of Ontario's nursing homes right now have outbreaks. This is 10, 12 months into the pandemic when Doug Ford alleged that he was going to put an iron ring of protection around those nursing homes six, seven months ago, and he hasn't. So, yeah, for sure, people need to take responsibility, but leaders have to lead, and Doug Ford is not up to this job. Well, he seemed less than definitive last hour when asked about that. Uh, the military in nursing homes said he had spoken to the prime minister and the prime minister promised the military Red Cross and some sort of help. Would you urge him to take that? I, I did urge him to make that call about a week and a half ago. And he had a conversation with the prime minister, as far as I know, last week as well. And I don't think that request was made at that point in time. Again, this speaks to the fact that with Doug Ford, there's always an excuse for delays and dithering and taking time to make decisions instead of moving decisively when it's quite apparent that it's spiraled out of control, tragically, in long-term care homes and elsewhere. So again, paid sick leave, call in the military, stop big box from selling non-essentials, be decisive, lead openly, be coherent. It's what we expect in a leader, and I think it's what we deserve. What you just detailed there, Mr. Del Duca, I was going to ask you, it's one thing, obviously, to criticize. It's another to offer or find some solutions, some real solutions. So are those the things you believe that are missing? Uh, what should we do differently to try to get these numbers down? So it's all of what I just mentioned a second ago. I think there needs to be a stronger push around isolation centers. I think that there, there's no excuse. There's absolutely no excuse for a single vaccination or vaccine dose still sitting in a freezer. Those need to be in arms that needed to take place yesterday. That's, again, one of the reasons I would be calling in the military. And, I, you know, I would be listening to the advice from coming, coming from public health leaders, but I'm gravely concerned that what we saw yesterday is well short of what's needed. So in a couple of weeks, I really hope I'm wrong about this, Jeff, but I'm really nervous that in a couple of weeks, we're going to hear that the numbers have not started to flatten. They have not come down the way that we need them to come down. And we're going to be in a, an even tougher situation. And that, to me, is just, it's completely horrifying. Well, we know the, the vaccine is uh, the ultimate, I guess, uh, the ultimate uh, answer. But the premier is asking for us to stay home, that uh, the vaccine needs, in his words, a, a bit of a runway. But, you know, a lot of that obviously is out of the provincial government's hands. They're waiting on the federal government for the supply, more supply of the uh, vaccine so we can get it into more arms. But is there anything else other than that uh, for, for you that needs to be done that can be done right now? I mean, are you in favor of this stay-at-home order? Well, first of all, let's be really clear about this vaccine discussion. As far as I know, Ontario has not yet put 100% of the vaccines that it has at, in its disposal, in its arsenal right now, into the arms of Ontario residents. So until we are at 100% of those vaccines being in arms rather than sitting in freezers, no provincial leader, no provincial representative should be complaining about supply coming from another level of government. That's number one. Number two, yeah, the stuff I mentioned a second ago, the paid sick leave, uh, shutting down non-essential uh, items in big box stores, calling in the military for help in nursing homes and with vaccine rollout, generally speaking, being more decisive. Hey, look, Mike, you've heard me say this before. I think on your program, Jeff, my daughters are in grade eight and grade four. They're learning from home right now. That's happening in hot zones across this province. What is the plan on the other side of the schools reopening whenever they do, whether it's February the 11th or it's later 
What's the plan to make sure class sizes remain small? What's the plan to make sure that school buses are safe? What's the plan to make sure our teachers and the students have mental health supports? I've heard nothing about any kind of contingency plan coming from Doug Ford on the education front. He's just kind of hoping that it gets better. You can't hope in the midst of a pandemic if you're not going to back it up again with meaningful, competent action. I want to ask you as well, Mr. Del Duca, heard from uh, some regions uh, throughout the uh, province that aren't as hard hit as uh, we are here in Toronto, uh, certainly uh, Peel region. Uh, for example, uh, Brampton's positivity rate, it's been revealed today, is at 17, 17 percent. Horrifying, horrifying. Do we need more of a tailored approach here? Should we have harsher restrictions in areas such as Brampton? Well, I think to an extent that we already do. But look, I've heard twice today in two di- from two different media outlets, Mayor Patrick Brown saying for probably, I mean, he says it almost every single day, as does the rest of that council and people in that community, paid sick leave, isolation centers, paid sick leave, isolation centers. They've been saying it for months. And yet Doug Ford stepped to the microphone yesterday, knowing that that's what they're saying, and delivered nothing on either. And so for an area like Brampton, where there's a higher than average number of essential workers who frankly can't afford to stay home if they have symptoms or if they think they're sick, which is like, it's just inconceivable, again, to me, that that's the scenario we're in. They need paid sick leave, and Doug Ford's not delivering it. And so, yes, a more tailored, a more tailored approach would be fine, but these are, the, like, these are the essentials. These are the basics, and Doug Ford is missing in action. Why is it you believe that there's such a hesitancy when it comes to paid sick leave? You know, I don't know. And I've been asking that question of people, um, public health leaders, municipal leaders as well. I, I, I don't want to play I don't want to play politics too much with this or at all, frankly, Jeff. But I I'm starting to believe that there's an ideological opposition to the concept of providing people with economic dignity, including those who are the most vulnerable workers that we have working in essential essential employment scenarios across the province. And I think that's really, really scary. It seems to me when I hear about the decisions Doug Ford's made during this pandemic, but particularly in the last few days, that he seems to be intent to defend the people who need his help the least and instead ignore the And at the same time, I should say, ignore the people who need his help the most. And that's bad in economic terms. It's absolutely apocalyptic in public health terms when you're dealing with a pandemic. So finally, Mr. Del Duke, I want to circle back to vaccination, if we could, for just a quick second. Uh, you mentioned uh, it's not good enough that we shouldn't have vac- vaccines remaining in freezers. Do you have faith or do you still have faith in General Hillier to deliver? You know, I, I do. I do have faith in General Hillier to deliver. I know there was a, a real serious problem over the Christmas holidays when there was a decision made by Doug Ford and his team to pause the vaccination rollout. But, I, you know, again, whether we're talking about chief medical officers of health we're talking about people leading the vaccination rollout effort. All of that is fine, but I've had the honor of serving inside the cabinet for four years, and I know, and everybody in Ontario knows, where the buck stops. It stops in that position of leadership, that person who occupies the premier's chair, and that person, especially when they're leading a majority government in our system, has an incredible amount of power. And we just need Doug Ford to step up, recognize he's got that power, lead decisively, do it with empathy, be competent, and I'm convinced if he were to do that, we'd be able to get through the second wave, get the vaccines rolled out and return our province to what we what, what we can be once again. Uh, he's not giving me a lot of optimism right now, but I, I sincerely hope that he figures it out. All right. Ontario Liberal Leader Stephen Del Duca with us this afternoon. Mr. Del Duca, appreciate the time as always. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. You stay safe. Stay at home if you can. Only essential workers should be in the office. That, of course, has ignited a debate over what exactly is essential. 
who is essential, what is considered to be an essential job. Let's welcome in employment lawyer Lior Zamfiro. He joins us now on Global News Radio 640 Toronto. Lior, good afternoon. Good afternoon, Jeff. Always a pleasure. Likewise. Okay, uh, let's start with, yes, the definition of essential. Is it uh, any clearer just exactly who is and who isn't an essential worker here in this province starting uh, tomorrow? Is there like an official or a legal definition? Not only is there no definition, Jeff, given the opportunity today to try to define or explain, the government made a point to say, we're not going to do that, because what's essential may be different depending on on the job and the area uh, and the part of the province that you're in, so we're going to stay away from that. So what we're going to do is provide some guidelines and talk about the type of businesses that can remain open as normal, the ones that can't be open during certain times. But also, and I think this is the key part here, is say that those employees that are able to do their job remotely, that are able to do their jobs from home, have to be allowed to work from home. That is key. So that already puts certain employees that you know work in front of a computer, they work with a phone, they're now not essential, at least not in terms of being in the office. They have to be allowed to work from home. That's a big change. Up until now, an employer, even with you know COVID running rampant, was able to say to any employee, you have to come into work no matter what, and if you don't, that's a resignation. So that is really the only help or definition that we've received from the government so far. Okay, so that may answer one of my big questions, because I was going to ask you, what if, if this has been kind of left up to the employer, government sort of washed their hands of it, what if your employer says, yeah, you have to be into work tomorrow, but you feel as if, no, I can do my job from home and I'm not uh, essential, uh, does the employee have any rights here? So up until now, an employee wouldn't have had rights. And one of the, the biggest calls that I've always gotten over the past number of months is, I don't want to go, I don't feel safe. Why can't I just do my job from home? And I would always have to say, well, that really is up to your employer. Well, that is no longer up to the employer. So in a situation where an employer still refuses to allow an employee to work from home when they can be working from home, that employee can potentially file a complaint with the Ministry of Labor, Uh, for their employer breaching the health orders and creating an unsafe and unhealthy work environment. So the government uh, inspector can come in and order the employer to comply and even fine the employer. Potentially also an employee that's put in that situation, if they wanted to, could treat their employment as being constructively dismissed by the risk when they, they don't need to be put in that risk. So now for the first time, an employee in that situation is going to have recourse, and an employer should really take a hard look and determine which of their employees is able to do their job properly uh, from a remote environment. This is sounding rather complicated. Are you anticipating over the next few days, the next few weeks, that this is going to get pretty messy? Well, it is because, you know, I mean, I may say to you, Listen, an employer has to allow someone that can do their job uh, remotely to do it. But wait a second. I may be able to do my job remotely, but am I as good as and efficient if I do it that way? An employer may say, well, sure, this employee can do it uh, remotely, but they're better and it's more efficient and it's, uh, you know, it, it's done properly if they're in the office. So who's going to say to them you're not able to do that? I think we have a lot of misconceptions now about what it means to be an essential worker. The stay-at-home order, for example, you share that word, you think, wait a second, we have to stay at home unless we're going for groceries or, or for a medical appointment. Yet pretty much every retailer that offers curbside 
pickup can stay open between 7 a.m. and 8 p.m. So clearly that's not the case. So I think the government has confused some things. It's going to cause, uh, you know, some confusions, misunderstanding out there. And I, I do expect a lot, of, uh, a lot of calls trying to get some clarification. Now, we're in the midst, obviously, of a public health crisis, Lior. Are you surprised that this has been kind of left up to companies and employers to determine whether or not their workers should be showing up uh, tomorrow and uh, the day after and for the next uh, few weeks, the next 28 days? I'm thinking about construction sites in particular because I'm sure you could talk to anybody who's funded a multi-million dollar construction project. They're going to say, yeah, my project's essential, my workers are essential, they need to be there. Yeah. I think that if the government decides that that workplaces are uh, important triggers or or, or triggers for the spread of the virus, and I think studies reflect that, then I think the government has to take the reins and determine and and make it very clear clear who can stay open and who cannot. Uh, to, To have these gray areas and provide guidelines that allow companies and employers to maneuver within them is just not productive. Uh, and it causes confusion and can cause conflict between employers and employees. So I do think that the government has to step up and, if, and determine if we think that these businesses are spreading the virus, that we're going to do something about it rather than provide some advice, guidance, and hope that things work on their own. I just don't think that's effective. Joined on the line by employment lawyer Lior Zamfiro. Lior, while we have you here, wanted to also talk about paid sick days, because that obviously has been a uh, subject of uh, much contention, not only over the last day or two, but uh, certainly over the last uh, few months and really throughout this uh, pandemic. Uh, The government has not uh, funded paid sick days, but what is the standard? Is there a standard? Could you enlighten us here? Is there like a mandated minimum when it comes to paid sick days in this province for employees? So the previous uh, liberal government, uh, the, the Wynn government, had changed the laws here in Ontario by, by providing for paid sick days for employees. That was a, a new thing. Up until now, all sick days were unpaid. Well, one of the first things that the Ford government did when it came into power is it eliminated that, and instead it created uh, a situation where employees can get up to three unpaid sick days. Uh, and now, given the pandemic, well, you know, they may be regretting that. I don't know. But certainly right now in this province, there is no requirement for an employer to pay an employee while they're off sick. Some employers have voluntary policies. They provide a number of paid sick days. Usually those are larger employers. The problem is with the smaller employers, employees that perhaps are not earning huge wages, uh, they may be put in a situation right now where they can't live off the benefits that the federal government is providing. And because of that, they're in a situation, well, I would want to stay home. I think I should be isolating. Well, I have to earn an income, so I'm going to go to work anyway. That spreads the virus. I think that is why the government now is under pressure to implement paid sick days, whether mandating employers do that or for the government to fund it, uh, that is something that on a temporary basis I think would be a good idea and it would be a a relief for employees uh, across the province. Without a doubt, and we will watch that, of course, with interest. Lior, appreciate the time, the perspective as always. Thanks so much. Thanks, Jeff. Be well. Lior Samfiro, employment lawyer.